You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast, and this is a special one. It's another live podcast brought to you from a lunch and learn hosted by my good friends at Wimmark, Women in Mining and Resources Queensland. Wimmark are in the habit of inviting wonderful guests to their lunches, and this one is no different. Margot Cairns is a bundle of energy. She's had a long career in the corporate world, building a huge international consulting firm from nothing. But then, incredibly to me and possibly to you, she walked away from it all. She just stopped going. She turned off the lights and let it fizzle out. Well, we'll hear why. We'll hear what she learned from it all. And just as interesting, we'll hear what she's doing with her time now with sourdough women based in Byron Bay. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Margot Cairns. It's nice to be here again. I recognize a few faces. I think a few of you have been here before for some of our live events that we've had here. They've worked out really nicely for both Wimmark and the podcast. They get a lot of downloads. We've had some great guests and Margot Cairns, no exception. I'm really looking forward to our chat today. As you know, I've already briefed Margot a little bit about some of the things that I'm intrigued with through her career. So Margot now lives in the beautiful Byron Bay and does some incredible work with sourdough. And we're going to hear all about that, but we'll tease you with that because I'm assuming a lot of you are really keen to hear all about that organization. But let's work up to that and hear a bit about your amazing career. I mean, just what Sally mentioned there, 25 years of writing the leadership column for a, a large publication, plus the six books that you've written and a huge business that you built. When you look back on that major bulk, the big part of the first phase of your career, I guess, how do you remember it? Oh, tiring. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Very tiring. So um, I'll start at the beginning, if that's all right. I I did uh, an honours. So I got got the university medal in um, education and I trained to teach preschools, early childhood education. So I'm an educational psych. And not only did I get the university medal, I got the Department of Education Prize for Theory and Practice and was told that I would get a job in seven years. There was a glut of teachers, there was a list, it was a seniority thing, and there were no jobs. So they said, congratulations, you're really awesome, (laughs) we'll find you a job in seven years. That's the one. Great. So my husband at the time wanted to go to Darwin, and we went up, and I went to put my, by the way, I had a child during that process of doing my degree. And I went to put my little girl in care and they asked me about myself and I told them and they said, well, just wait here. And then they went out and a whole lot of ladies came in and they said, we'd like you to run this organisation. And it was called Darwin Family Centres and it was all the childcare and support for the top end of Australia. And we had five childcare centres, three family daycare schemes, a mobile preschool unit and a social work unit. So straight out of university, knowing absolutely nothing about absolutely nothing, I had a I can't remember the number of staff, but I had over a 1,000 kids in care and multi-million dollar business that I was running. And I did that for a few years. I also lectured at the university in sociology, urban sociology. Um, Don't ask me how, but that happened. And then I went to do an MBA. And my husband came and did the MBA too. And unfortunately, I kept beating him and he didn't like it. And the marriage didn't last. And so I found myself by then with two kids 
And one of them was very sick. In fact, she kept dying. And although I <laughs> did very well in my MBA, I can't remember if I came first or second, but I did well. And I was being headhunted by McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group and all these big consulting firms. I knew that I couldn't be a single mum with a child that needed full-time care and go to work. So for a year, I didn't. For a year, I stayed home and I looked after my daughter and I looked after my son. And it just so happened that that year, my dad had cancer and that was the last year of his life. So I nursed him for a year. At the end of that year, I thought, oh, I better earn some money because I was in quite a bit of debt by then. You know, my husband was not particularly excited the fact that I'd left and the marriage had failed and didn't sort of help in any way. And so I had a lot of debt and I didn't know, really know what to do. You know, they say an MBA means you're mediocre but arrogant. So, you know, I did have that going for me. And I went off and I gave a speech. And the speech was in Melbourne and it was, you know, a freebie thing. And I was the first speaker after lunch and there'd been all these talking heads and I've been sitting, sitting there all morning getting more and more bored and I thought, I can't, I've got the graveyard shift. They're going to come back after lunch. They're bored sodless and I can't do it. So I had all the tables and chairs removed during the lunch period, came back. Now, I, I did let them keep their chairs. It was the tables I took out. Got the people to sit in small groups and imagine each other as animals. And the, did you just come up with this off, off the did, top of your I head did, because I you did. had the graveyard shift? I thought, I thought I can't just give another talk. So I got them and, you know, if somebody who you've never really met or you've only just sat next to sort of says you remind me of a snake, there's some feedback in that, you know, or you remind me of a Labrador, you know. And anyway, so the whole message was we think that what we communicate comes out of our mouth, but actually it comes out of us and it's that energy. So, you know, if you're talking and talking and talking and people aren't doing what you want them to do, maybe you should have a look at yourself. That was the message. And uh, in the afternoon tea break, these two guys in sort of car keys came up and said, our boss needs you. Well, I've got to tell you, you know, later on in my career, even now, if somebody said that, I'd say that's terribly nice of you and would you like a bicky? But back then, I needed their boss way more than he needed me. I was in debt up to my ears. I needed work. And he just happened to be the head of a place called Portland Aluminium Smelter, which happened to be the largest aluminium smelter in the Southern Hemisphere. So before I knew it, I was on a plane flying to Portland Aluminium Smelter and I was going to interview each one of these men of the top team and then get to meet the boss. And I did. And as the day went on, I learned about the boss and, you know, I learned out his name was David and that he had life-threatening cancer and that it was killing him and that he had a ferocious temper and that his temper got worse during the day and that he hated consultants. And I was his last appointment of the day. So by the time I walked in, here's this man, and he was very tall. He was about six foot something. He's sort of hovering over the chair, and he was terribly thin, except he had this huge gut, and I later found out that was the cancer that was killing him, but he sort of hovered. And I later found out that's what he did when he really hated people and he wanted them to go away. And somehow in that period, it was decided that I and David and 17 men would get in aluminium dinghies in the centre of Australia and in the Minka, and we would flow boat down the floodwaters of Cooper's Creek, which apparently only floods every 50 years, into Lake Eyre, and that it would be called a leadership training exhibition or exhibition, whatever it was, leadership training. So that's what happened. You know, I don't know how it happened. The only thing, I keep going back there and thinking, how did that happen? And I thought I was so desperate. You know, here I am, a single mum, two kids, 
no money, dead up to my ears. You know, I would have done anything. <laughs> I really would have done anything to get some money for the kids. So that's how it started. So that was my question. So that's when you think back to the business that you built, that's the beginning of it. Well, what happened was that aluminium smelter went from being the worst industrial site in Australia to the best. So it actually became the world benchmark for an aluminium smelter. They won three World Heritage Awards. David was the first Australian to be named an unsung hero of industry. There was a total transformation happened for those men and that smelter. I remember the first time I went, I went in through a picket line. And before David died, he walked me through the plant. Now, you've got to know this guy was Ocker. Right here is this sort of six foot three ochre bloke, you know, he's fearsome. <laughs> and we're walking through the plant. He says, "Marco, there's love in this plant," you know. And by the time he died, there was. <laughs> so, how big did your organisation get? I had twenty consultants flying all around the world, working with top teams of global corporations. And how long did it last? How long were you running Oof, this too show? Too long. How too long. How long's too long? <laughs> About 20 years. 20 years. <laughs> now, you know what fascinates me is that there was a point after 20 years when you had 20 consultants flying all over the world and, and presumably making a pretty good profit out of this enormous business. There was a point at which you just walked away from it all. You didn't sell it. You didn't nah. tie it in a bow and make it earn you a living for the rest of your life. You just walked out and it fizzled and died behind you. Yeah. Yep. Why on earth did you do that? <laughs> I got sick. So after, so what happened was I did write those books and one of them became an international best-selling book in business and I had global contracts and I had another husband by then who was in the middle of having some kind of nervous breakdown and I didn't sleep and I just fell off the edge. I burned out. And I thought, you know, I can stay here and do all the things I'm meant to do and, you know, do all the right stuff or I can walk away. And I thought, well, I've got enough money, I'll walk away. Any regrets? But there were in the beginning. Now there absolutely aren't. I, I don't think anything other than that would have got me out of it because it was, you know, like you become a prisoner of your own success. And I definitely was a prisoner of success. So you obviously hoped in some way that it would continue in your absence. Did you put anything no. in place or, or no. did you, you walked out knowing that it would die Without you. But it didn't die. I trained all those people and they all went out and set up one-man bands and two-man bands and three-man bands and, you know, they do what they do. I just didn't want to be part of it anymore. How long ago was that? Um, how long ago was that? Maybe 10 years ago. And yes. you moved to the beautiful Byron Bay? I did. <laughs> and what's life like in Byron Bay? Well, I live on acreage and I wake up in the morning and I look at trees and I look at cows and I look at the Pacific Ocean and I feel incredibly blessed from morning till night. And I have loads of friends and I have family and I have a gorgeous new husband that you know, does, thankfully doesn't throw tantrums um, <laughs> and I don't beat in MBAs. And he comes up and we spend our weekends together and I travel and I work. People ring up and say, will you come and do this or that? You know, and I go, yeah. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. So we're going to talk about what has happened since you were living in Byron Bay, the, the ideas that you've had and the people that you've met. But before we get there, I want to know from someone who has produced a hundred and five podcasts, I think, it's hard to keep creating content. 
But you managed to write the leadership column for 25 years for what was the publication? Engineers Australia. Engineers Australia. It was, it was the best read article in the magazine, which really, really, really pissed the, um, the presidents off because everyone read my column and they didn't read the president's column. You've written six books. <laughs> How on earth did you come up with new ideas to write a column for 25 well, years? Well, that's what I want to talk to these ladies. Because, Glad I asked. <laughs> because inside each of us is this wonderful wellswing of creativity. And it's actually in our emotions and in our spirit. And those of us that have, you know, world-class educations, forget that. We think we have to find it in a book or a course or somewhere else. And if we can't find it in a book or a course or something else, it doesn't work. And I think because my life kept falling in a hole, you know, like, not everyone has a daughter that dies and has to be recovered. You know, not everyone goes through those sorts of things. I had to find a source of my inside myself that was creative. And I was not going to find a solution. Like, I mean, if I'd have taken the offer to work for McKinsey's, for example, I could have got a nanny and she could have come and looked after my kids and I could have flown all over the world and I could have been terribly successful and I could now be sitting on the boards of half the companies in this country. I didn't want to do that, right? So if I was going to do it differently, I had to do it differently. So what I did was I, so by then I was a trained psychotherapist. I was a trained educational psych. I had an MBA. I also had majored in economics. I'd run a group of companies. I just put, oh, then I've gone on and I'm, I'm a trained yoga teacher and a trained hypnotist and, you know, all sorts of things. I just put it all together and I thought, let's see what works. And I tried something. If it worked, I did it again. If it didn't work, I didn't do it again. And the companies that I worked with became, apart from becoming benchmarks in their field, they made billions more money. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm not that interested in money. I didn't really care that they made billions more, but they cared, right? And what I cared about is that they were healthy, that they were happy, that they were looking after the environment, they were looking after the society. Those are the things I cared about. For them to let me do that, I had to make, help them make billions more money. So I just put it all together and came up with something that worked. And then I got bored with that and I'd come up with something else and I'd get bored with that and I'd, you know. And I think we women have to start doing this. We have to start doing it because the current economic model is not working. You know, and I can, I've got all these statistics in my head. I can go through about how it's not working for us and we're the winners, right? But, you know, one in two Australians have a mental illness. Do you know that every week 60 people successfully kill themselves? 1,400 try, yeah? I had a, a, well, it was actually our wedding party, which was last year, and we had 80 guests, and they weren't, you know, they were just normal people from a variety of walks in life. Out of that 80 people, five were related to somebody who had suicided that week, right? So, and this is what's happening, and it's happening more and more. So we've got increased addiction through the sports betting particularly and also the, num the sort of drugs people are taking are, are, um, are synthetic now, so they're actually worse. They're having a bigger impact. So all these things that are happening that are showing that our society in all sorts of ways is not optimal. So how do you link that with the work that you did as a consultant? Help me understand, I know it was evolving and I know that you, you probably didn't deliver the same stuff twice, but... The principles that underpinned the work that you did as a successful consultant as you're building your business, compared to the principles that you operate with sourdough and the other work that you're doing now, what's the link between those th those two oh, things? A, a, a huge. So, I mean, I can tell you all the brain science, but that's boring and we haven't got time. 
But basically, what works for human beings is to be real. Sit around, be real, relate as human beings, feel your feelings, have a real conversation, and then go, okay, what can we do together? Now, that worked in business. You know, I, I, all right, it's a long time ago. They're all probably dead now, so I'm going to tell you the story. Top team of BP Oil, right? So I'm in Sydney and I get this phone call from the managing director of BP Oil. Can you come to breakfast? Well, why not? Who does? You know, happens to everyone every day. Of course I'll come to breakfast. So I go to breakfast and he says, I need you to come to London and work with my top team. And I said, why? Because no one will talk to each other. I said, but you're running a global corporate. He said, well, we don't talk and we haven't met for six months. I said, what do you mean you haven't met? He said, we can't get them to all be in the same room. I said, well, I will come to London and I will work with your team, but you have to do it my way. And he said, what does that involve? And I said, mm, I'll tell you later. So firstly, we, I went and talked to each one of those men and convinced them to be part of this. Then we stayed in an incredibly luxurious country house somewhere in England, and we went for a walk. And the only rule in the walk was they couldn't talk business, and they had to use a thing called I statements. And I statements is how you feel, how you think, and what you're going to do about it. So you could only talk about yourself. And I promised them that if they did this, we could have beers for lunch and very nice wine for dinner. So we did it. When you described that activity to them, to oil executives, what kind of uh, response did you get? Oh, by the time, by that time, they were so intrigued by this mad woman from Australia that they'd do anything, I think. So we did that. And by the end of that day, they were mates. You know, two of those men that would not be sitting in the room actually went after that, that week that we had together. So that was the beginning of a strategy process. The next day we went and did all the strategy they hadn't done for six months. We had all the conversations they hadn't done. We got everything done, right? Really, really quickly. Because the egos are out of the way. The, the nonsense was out of the way. They were in what I call their wise brain, yeah? Um, but two of those men actually after that went and bought houses next to each other on the Algarve Coast. They became great mates. Because of you. I think because they got out of their own way. So that story kind of, I'm getting, typifies the way that you did your work through your organisation. Well, I think what it typifies is it's all about being human and being real. And if we're human and we're real, then we can get the job done. Because what happens is egos get in the way, you know, and people just put up this sort of egoic smoke screen and you're all fighting with the egoic smoke screen. You're not getting the job done, right? Get rid of the egoic smoke screen, get the job done, and it gets done really easily. And then you know what? People like to like each other. They actually want to be with each other. The guys at Portland said we would rather be here with our colleagues and with our friends because we have a better relationship with them. So now I'm, I'm really interested into how that, that understanding of humanity and how we really act or interact as human beings or how we should interact as human beings works. Tell us now about the way sourdough came about, what work you do with sourdough and how those same philosophies drive the way you go about it and the success that you have. Okay. Well, here's the thing. It drives sourdough women. Sourdough women and sourdough men are different. So we'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. So as we said, I live on the hinterland in Byron Bay and my next door neighbours are retired sort of super executives, most of them. And they had this thing called sourdough, which was pretty much a man's lunch where they all got together and they worked out how they could help the local economy. And they thought, well, let's have a woman on Margot's our neighbour, we'll invite her. But they didn't like me once I got there because I kept asking questions they didn't like and pointing out facts they'd rather not fight. So they suggested we have sourdough women. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you start your own group, Margot? <laughs> so I did. And the first thing we decided is we were not men. Right? We got together and we said, okay, we are sadder women. We are not men. 
So what we're going to do is work out how do you be successful as a woman. I've got to tell you, one of the things they told me in my MBA was to be androgynous. And I was. You know, when I left corporate, I burned all my clothes. I didn't just walk out of my business. I burned all my clothes. I had my ears pierced. I had my nails done. And I bought the sexiest knickers, right? You know, it's like I was sick of being a shooto boy. You know, I had played the boys' game and I had done it really well. I'd done it, you know, to be when I first went to the World Economic Forum, which at the, that time was the one down in Melbourne. I don't know if you've got any, if you're old enough to remember the riots. I was on the other side of those riots. By the way, my children at the time wanted to be out demonstrating, but I somehow convinced them not to. But anyway, I was in there on the other side of that. And women go to the World Economic Forum, but they're usually somebody's partner. You know, they're, they're the plus one. And, and I wasn't. I was there in my own right. And I want to tell you, I wanted to leave. It was so much testosterone. You know, like, I don't know, 5% of women are there in their own right. It was so much testosterone. I just thought, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. And I sort of thought at that time, business needs women, but I don't know if women need business. So that was possibly the beginning of me thinking, I think I'd like to do something where I can just be a girl. So anyway, that's what Sound of Women's about. It's how do we look at the world from our femininity, and I, I don't mean that fluffy, but you know, what we know is that in any one second, the brain processes 40 bits of information consciously and 40 million bits unconsciously. And women are really good at that unconscious stuff. That's our competitive advantage. But we've learned to stay in the conscious because that's the rules. And the rules have come from the boys, and the boys are more comfortable in the conscious stuff. So we go in and we, well, this is what happened to me. I went in, I played the boys' game, I played it really well, and then I thought, oh, well, where am I in this? Who am I in this? I want to be me. You know, I, I, I want to have feelings. I, I want to care. You know, it's really funny. Everyone shook my hand. I want to cuddle you all, you know. I come from Byron Bay. I've had, I've had chief executive retreats in my house and the, I tell them to come in their board shorts and they walk in and I cuddle them. And I go, oh. but, you know, by the time they leave, they're all doing the cuddling, I'm telling you. So now there's... It's about we are different. So well, how are we different? How can we work with that? And that's what Zada Women's all about. Now, the problem is we're starting to get money from the government. And what, guess what the government wants? They want us to be like the boys. But anyway, I keep what, fighting. What, what, when you say they want you to be like the boys, well, what, they, what's the, the things they, The things they want to measure are the things that are in that 40% you know, of conscious stuff. They want to measure the tangible, measurable shit. And so people go, oh, the way, the way we know how to do that, we'll do it that way, which is the old way, rather than, well, why don't we do something completely different and see where that ends up? So what do you actually do? In Sado, I give everyone the shits, really. Because <laughs> I just go, no, we've got to think of a different way. We've got to do this differently. We've got to think outside the box. So one of the things we did do was we put, I think, 60 people now, 60 women through ULAB. Have anyone here ever done ULAB, heard of ULAB? It's a program out of MIT and it's run, I can't remember his name right now, but basically it's about how to move from ego to eco. It's how to open your heart, your mind and your will. Will read spirit, right? Free through, uh, through edX, MIT, and we've put 60 women in Byron through that so far. So that's sort of where we're starting, you know. What we haven't done with it, which we need to do, and which I am now doing in Kyogle, is saying, okay, how do we turn this into projects? How do we look at this new technology, this new way of operating? Now, it's run by Otto Sharman, who's a bloke, but it's very feminine. He admits that. He said, this is more feminine stuff than masculine stuff, right? This is a completely different way of looking so that you can actually 
use that 40 million bits. Because, listen, the problems we have are not easy problems. They're what we call wicked problems. And wicked problems are not easy to solve. In fact, most people can't even see a wicked problem. So we go, oh, the problems are darny. What we'll do is we just won't open a darny. You know, people aren't going, well, there's about 8 million things associated with this. Why don't we have a look at the 8 million things and get all those different stakeholders together and have a different sort of conversation? Because maybe there's a brilliant outcome that we're not even seeing. And that's what I did in business. So when you talk about the different perspective that women bring and the work that you're doing and the understanding that you have because of your career, what do you advise our audience to do differently? How how do we turn that into a a practical difference in the way we work? So sitting in front of us with 90 plus percent professional women and you're telling them, tap into the fact that you're a woman. Don't just do things the way they've always been done because they were created in a man's world. But what does that actually mean on a practical level when we go back to the office and we go back into that world? Mm, it's really challenging, actually. You know, it was easy enough for me when I was a corporate consultant because I'd worked with top teams of companies for years, right? So for years, they'd be going through a process and they'd be learning to operate in a different way and to actually have emotions and to relate you know, as human beings. Without support, it's hard. But, you know, in Byron, we have this thing called CODA. It's called Codependence Anonymous. And it's basically for anyone whose relationship isn't perfect. And it's people sitting around tables like this, doing what I was paid unbelievably large amounts of money to do in corporate, just saying how they feel and relating to each other. And then everyone goes off and does brilliant things all week. Costs $3 to go. Well, that's a donation, you know, so the donation could be $3. So what I'm saying is change takes time. And to tell you about that, I'd have to go through all the brain research and I don't have that capacity right here, right now. But once you understand how the brain changes, it changes over time with support in a place of safety. Now, corporate environments are rarely safe, yeah? So what you do is you find a place which can be safe or you turn a place like this into a safe place. So, you know, you can meet for lunch and you can have people like me come and talk and maybe once in a while, maybe even regularly, You get together and you get a new set of rules and you start to relate in a new way and you start to develop those things about yourself and each other that are really going to revolutionize you. And, you know, that's challenging. And look, I was, I've been thinking about, because I knew you were going to ask. And I think it takes, (laughs) it takes so much courage to do it. And I was thinking, you know, people say to women, don't be emotional, right? Don't be emotional, being emotional. And I, I, I've got to the stage where I go, yes, I am. I am, because that's part of being human. I mean, what's the difference between us and a machine? You know, we're 40%, 40 to 50% of us are going to lose our jobs in the next 10 years, right? What's the difference between us and those very smart machines? Our feelings, our humanity. So, yeah, now is the time to go, yes, I am emotional and I am fine. Why don't you be like, how do you feel that? Yeah? And I, I used to teach people that. Entertained is how I feel. <laughs> so, you know, that we, we live in a man's world and that is for sure. And maybe things are changing gradually. But again, back to the audience, we live in a mining world. A lot of people in this room are from the resources sector. And if we live in a man's world, then this is a man's industry. I know. I work there. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of challenge. my career, I've worked there. And it's nice to sit around and talk about what it means sort of conceptually and philosophically. I had a great conversation with someone called Fabian Datner oh, I know. a long yep. time ago. Yeah, yeah. She describes Her, yeah. herself yep. as a gender warrior, yep. I think. Yep. Yep. And Fabian talks about the fact that we don't just need equality. We need to go the other way. 
women need to be in charge of the world. Absolutely. Because men aren't doing a very good job. We live in times of war and, and everything else that we know and, and economic ups and downs and poverty and, and a massive inequality. And women just wouldn't have it that way because Fabian talks about the differences between men and women. Women are more naturally collaborators. Women take greater care with public resources. Mm -hmm. And finally, women have a greater sense of the future the history that they're leaving behind, the legacy that they're leaving behind. So Fabian argues that we don't just we don't need equality. That's not our goal. We need a woman's world. Absolutely. But just some statistics. The World Please. Economic Forum tells us if we keep doing it the way we're doing, we will get economic equality for women in 202 years. That's not so bad. And we will get political equality for women in 107 years. Too slow, Right. So we have to do it radically. I will tell you the way the women of Iceland did it, but it's not the way I suggest. They went on strike. In 1975, all the women in Iceland said, we are having a day off. We are not cooking. We are not cleaning. We are not driving the buses. We are not doing anything. And they didn't until they got some equality. And then they did it again in 2001 and 2005 and 2011. Iceland has the most equality of any country in the world. Now, Sweden has a feminist foreign policy, as does Canada, right? Now, that's if you're prepared to be really, really, really gutsy. Most of us are. We don't have the courage and we don't have the support. You have to set up support networks. And you have to set up support networks of other women where you actually create safety. You create emotional safety. You actually learn new tools. And, you know, I'm just suggesting code because it's free and it's here and it's available. But there's hundreds of ways you can do it. I'm working now with the women of Kyogle, and that's exactly what we're doing there. I run this little course called Getting and Enjoying It All as a Woman, and they paid me to go to Kyogle and to run the course, and then afterwards they had a breakfast, and along to the breakfast came the head of the CWA and the head of the Chamber of Commerce and the two people from council and the head of the local church, who were all, they're all women. And after by that breakfast, they had worked out a plan to create Kyogle as a safe place for people to change, right? As a safe place for people to look at things differently, operate differently, learn to be human, learn to relate to each other, learn to think outside the box. Now, they have to. If they don't do that in Kyogle, it's a little country town in a drought, right? But the women, not the men, the women have said, we want to do something about that. We want to create an environment here, support each other, learn to look after each other. Learn to, and, and women, when women look after each other, they look after men. No, you do. Don't get left behind. We love you. Yeah? And the two other blokes here. <laughs> three, I think. There are three of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's what it takes. You talk about artificial intelligence coming. We talk about- it's No, it's not coming. It's, it's here. It's not coming. It's here. Big time. Talk about losing our jobs, which I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. Talk about having robots at home, which I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. But- the other directions of society and gender imbalance and, and if we keep doing the things, the things the way we've always done them, where that's heading. We've just had a federal election a few months ago. I didn't hear any of those things discussed no, not from it. any side of politics. All, all parties are immune from these kind of conversations. So is that, is that okay by you? Is this a conversation? Are these strands of conversations that it's not the government to lead, it is the community to lead and the government will follow? Or are you disappointed that we just had a federal election and you heard none of those things discussed? 
So let me just get you to imagine politicians sitting around, expressing their emotions, relating to each other as human beings, and thinking about the big issues. I was not surprised the election ran. I have to say, I have a daughter who's a greenie and a husband who's a property developer. It was an interesting time in our house. So does it, is that just the way it is? Does that mean that the, the, the government are not leaders in our society, the government are followers? And that just means that the, the leaders need to emerge from other parts of our community? Okay, brain research. We know that the brain de- develops in stages. The 75% of people are at the lowest stage. And that stage, we cannot even see a wicked problem. What's a wicked problem? A wicked problem is a complex problem. And we actually understand the complexity and we actually try and work on it in multiple ways, right? 25% of people are able to do that and think that way. I don't think, well, maybe 25% of our politicians are at that higher level. I would be surprised. But even if they are, they get elected by 75% of the population. So, you know, it's not going to happen from the traditional structures of our society. I was at the World Economic Forum in Washington years and years ago, and this wonderful guy turned up. I can't remember his name, but he was a beautiful Englishman, very debonair and handsome. And, and he stood, he was the chair of the London Stock Exchange. And he said, I am the chair of the London Stock Exchange and I work in the city and, you know, when we used to go to work, we'd go at a certain time and there were rules and there were regulations and he said, now, to be perfectly honest, so much is traded over the counter. Don't know if the stock exchange is relevant at all, right? Now, that was 20 years ago and that's what's happening to all our institutions. We've been in an industrial era. We're not there anymore. We have industrial era institutions. They are no longer relevant but we cling to them, yeah? So the only way we're going to get out of this is people going, we want to do this differently. And it's going to happen by the people that get hurt first, and they're most likely to be women. Nice nice way to wrap that around, back to where we started. Okay, folks, I'm going to throw it to some decent questions now, some questions from the audience. Like I said, only content, you can't, you can't do that, Margot. Don't run around over there. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's going to unplug again. I didn't want come, to you have help. to come out the front, be bold enough to come out the front. Nice, hard-hitting, <laughs> controversial questions. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, my name's Sally Ann Blanchard. Very nice to meet you. Shouldn't we cuddle? <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling you on that one. I feel at home. I think one of the things that we have in our corporate world at the moment is this ego-centric, traditional, stay at your desk, and yet we're, we're also pushing for flexibility and the ability to have autonomy and work for an output-based uh, life. Yet equally on a remote working, which I know a lot of people here may also experience, we then have trouble in communicating with bosses on the phone or, you know, it, we're in a really complicated work situation at the moment. I just was interested in your thoughts on that. Thank That's, you. That is, a wicked, that is a wicked problem. That really is a wicked problem. And and so, of course, I will do what a politician does and answer a completely different question. Um, <laughs> so I, I have a daughter and a son, and my son is a very successful entrepreneur, and my daughter is married to a very successful entrepreneur, and my daughter and my daughter-in-law stay home, and they look after the children. And they both are highly educated, and they were brought up to be feminists. <laughs> and my son was brought up to be a feminist. And here they are in this traditional situation. And a girlfriend of mine sent me this article out of the New York Times the other day about how successful people have a stay-at-home partner and that this is the actual discrepancy between women at the top, highly educated women and highly educated men is increasing, right? Because what it said is, as equality grew, work got greedy. So what they're saying is if you, and it's why I didn't go to McKinsey, 
if you're going to work in one of these top jobs, they are going to expect you to be there 60 to 80 hours a week. And you can't do that if you have kids. So what's happening is, although it appears to be changing, it's actually getting worse, right? And that's why, although we make some gains and, you know, we've now got 25% of women on board and it used to be 8%, isn't that fantastic? The truth of the matter is more and more women walk out once they get to the top. They walk out and the boys stay and the boys resent it because they don't want to be working 60, 80 hours a week. They want to be home with their wives and their kids. They want a life, right? So it's not really working for anyone because it's an old system. I find that we're trying to have courageous conversations and speak up and show up and have all of these conversations with our senior management team. Yet at the same time, we have this fear-based management style really being filtering down the system. I don't know if anybody else really agrees with that, but um, that's where I think there's discrepancy. Well, that's because they don't know anything else. And that was what I did for however many years I did what I did. I walked into those top teams and boards of those big companies. I got them to do yoga. You know, can you imagine those guys in BP? They're all in their 80s then doing yoga, but they did. You know how I did it? I got the sexiest yoga teacher I could find. Um, <laughs> you do what you have to know do, right? Know their weakness. So, you know, got them to do yoga. By the time they'd been in their board shorts and, you know, had to kiss their toes, they'd do almost anything. But that's what happened. Then this reality happened, and then they stopped being the beasts. And you know what happened? People didn't believe it. The first thing that happened in Portland when that top team started to change is people thought they were on something. You know, they really did. They thought something's really gone wrong with the top team. They're, they're being nice. You know, they're actually being reasonable. You know, they're asking for sensible things. So, you know, then I had to go and work down the line to teach them, no, no, they actually have changed. It's horrible for you to say that although things seem like they're getting better, they're actually getting worse. I, and you've got the facts to back that up. But at the same time as that, isn't the transition to true flexibility and understanding in workplaces, isn't that real? Aren't we making some grounds in terms of understanding that the traditional nine to five, Monday to Friday at the desk is not the only way to produce results? And therefore, that will expand the type of people that are able to go into senior roles and be successful professionally because we're able to work in different ways. Isn't that revolution real? We're in a time of change, right? We're in a time of, and it's not change, it's transformation. It's, we call it rapid discontinuous change. So it's not from here, 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 here. It's from here to here, right? So we don't know, right? So things are changing. There's no doubt they're changing. But what they're changing to, how they're changing, where it's going to end up depends on us, right? So that's why I say it's all about us being human. It's us being emotionally resilient. It's us supporting each other. It's us getting together and creating the kind of world we want. Because we're going to have to make the decisions. Have time for a couple of more questions. Alex, I think I saw you preparing a question. Hi. Hi, Great Alex. for the talk so far. So I've got a two-part question for you. The first one is, what are your thoughts on universal basic income as a strategy to counter the joblessness caused by increased automation? And the second part of that, what do you think would be the major difficulties of its implementation specifically in Australia? Mm, that's a big question, and I don't think I have the economic knowledge you at went the, to the moment. World Economic Forum. Oh, yeah. You're the most qualified oh, person oh, in the room. I went to the 2020 conference and was on the economic forum in the economic hub. You're the best we've got. That doesn't mean I have a clue what's going on, and I've got to tell you, it doesn't mean they had a clue what was going on either, right? And I that that's a 
I would need a lot of research to answer that. And you know what? Probably how I do it is I get a whole lot of people that disagree with each other and I put them in a room and I get them to be real and I get them to work together for a couple of days and we come up with an interesting outcome. Yeah? As a concept. That's not how things happen, is it? As a concept, You've got reality. You've got politicians. Yeah. The idea of the universal basic income is something that we've heard a lot more about in the last few years. I know it's been trialled in different parts of the world. It's a conversation that hasn't quite got into the mainstream in Australia, but it's certainly bubbling away. What do you think about that idea in principle when at the same time you're warning of of the coming robots? So I say about my daughter who's a hippie who's married to a squillionaire, he's one of these fintech people, you know, it's a bit of a, well, I'm the same. You know, I've been working at the top end of business and really I'm a socialist, I think, because I like people. And, you know, when I was a single mum, with a dying daughter and a dying father and no money, I was really appreciative that I got a free education. And I was really appreciative that we had free healthcare because today I wouldn't get out of it. If that happened today to, to me, I would not get out of it. I would end up with a hex debt and I would end up with medical bills and I would still be paying them back. So I like the idea of a fair go for everyone. Now, whether the answer for that fair go is a universal wage, I don't know. I don't have the economic thing. But what I think is everybody needs a figure. Everybody needs an opportunity. And money helps with that. You know, having an education helps. You know, I've been in America rallies of, for children and, and heard of families that have had to sell their house because their kid had a health il- illness, you know. In one of the richest countries in, in the world. In one of the richest countries in the world. As one of my clients used to say, America, they're so clever, the only colonial power in the world that imported poverty. All right, I think we have time for one more question, folks. Oh, it's a fight. Yeah, have a, no, fight it out. <laughs> well, I'd just like to know if you have any tips on overcoming cynicism towards the things you're talking about, but at a lower level, not necessarily with the CEO. Because I'd say most of us are day-to-day working with a lot lower level than the leadership management team, or at least I know I am. And a lot of what you're saying, I would literally just be laughed at if I said it. So... I would be interested in like knowing how you approach that cynicism, how you've dealt with it in the past. Well, you know, for most of my career, I was the youngest person and the only woman in the room. And I was a bit odd. You know, you've heard the sort of things I did. So it was generally decided that I got there by sleeping with the boss. And I used to say, if only I had the energy (laughs) (laughs) to sleep with all the men I'm supposed to have slept with, I'd be doing really well. And I remember being at the Oil Man's Club in Calgary with one of my clients and we'd been to a corporate dinner and I said, I'm going home now. He said, I want to go home too. I said, we can't leave together. I said, they'll say we're having an affair. He said, Margaret, put your shoulders back and your head up and off we went. And, you know, I think that's what it's about. You just can't let it get you down. They will say something. You know, if you're Either, you know, <laughs> when I was young, I was clearly having sex with every man on the planet, and now I'm old and they really can't work it out. So <laughs> you're going to get it one way or the other. You be different, you're going to get it. So I, I think it was Carl Jung said, they either ignore you or they attack you. Well, if we're going to change the world, girls, they're going to attack us. And that's why you need each other. That's why you need to work together, hold each other, support each other, become emotionally robust, yeah, and go, but I care. See, I have grandchildren. I mean, my, my current husband and I had a big fight recently because he said he didn't care about climate change. I said, you have grandchildren. 
Happy, you don't care about climate change. No, we have grandchildren and they don't have children, you know. We're the elders. We're supposed to be preparing the planet for the rest of the world. So, you know, if we're going to care, if we're going to change the world, if we're not going to have parties where five people turn up whose close relative has suicided that week, we're going to have to do something about it. And that's hard when you've got a job and you've got kids and you've got a husband and you've got sport and you've got community. And let's face it, we're comfortable. But things happen. Happen to me. We've run out of time, unfortunately. But Margot, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. And that was Margot Cairns. I told you, she's a bundle of energy and she can tell a great story. I loved chatting about that one thing that binds together all the different types of work she's done, whether it's a strategy session with oil execs, working with female entrepreneurs, or people struggling with addiction. That thread is humanity, our connections with ourselves and the human beings all around us. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Margot on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.